Chapter Ten of the Night Club by Herbert Jenkins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten: The Night Club Visits Bindle. One Sunday evening, on arriving at Dick Little's flat, I was greeted with the announcement, "J.B.'s ill." I looked round at the gloomy faces. It was then that I appreciated how the night club revolved round Bindle's personality. From a note Dick Little had received, it appeared that Bindle had hurt his ankle and been forced to lie up for a week. His letter was characteristic. It ran, Dear Sir, I've been kicking what I didn't ought to have kicked, and I got to lay up for a week. Cheero! I shall think of the night club. Yours respectfully, Joe Bindle. We wondered what it was that Bindle had kicked that he ought not to have kicked. There was, we felt sure, a story behind the letter. We looked at each other rather helplessly. "'Shall we begin?' asked Angel Herald. One of his stories was down for that evening. "'We must wait for Miss Carruthers,' said Jim Owen, a cousin of mine, and rather an ass about women. At that moment Sally and Jack Carruthers turned up and were told the direful news. "'Oh, poor J.B.' cried Sally, who had quite drifted into our way of speech. "'What shall we do?' asked Jack Carruthers. We all looked at each other as if expectant of a solution anywhere but in our own brains. "'I have it!' cried Sally, suddenly clapping her hands, her eyes flashing with excitement. "'Out with it, Sally,' said Jack, putting his arm round her shoulders. Many of us envied him that habit of his. "'We'll all go and see J.B.' cried Sally. Dick Little nearly got notice to quit through that idea of Sally's. The yell that went up to the ceiling above was as nothing to the things that fell from the ceiling below. Tom Little was in a mad mood, and he insisted that we should all form a ring round Sally, and hand in hand we flung ourselves round her. Flung was the only word that describes our emotions. There were sixteen of us, and Dick Little's rooms are not over large. It was a mad rout. We were interrupted in our acclaim of Sally's inspiration by a tremendous hammering at the door of the flat. Dick Little opened it, and let in a flood of the most exotic language to which we had ever listened. It was talk that would have made a drill-sergeant envious. It had about it the tang of the barrack square. It silenced us, and stilled our movements as nothing else would have done. It poured in through the door like a flood. It gave an intensely personal view of ourselves, our forebears and our posterity, if any. It described our education, our upbringing and the inadequacy of the penal code of England. We stood in hushed admiration, especially the men from Tim's. Sally listened for about half a minute, quite unperturbed. It is a strange thing, but language has no effect on Sally. I have seen her listening quite gravely to the inspired utterances of a Thames lighterman. This evening, at the end of half a minute, she walked to the door, we crowding behind her to see the fun, for we had all recognized the voice of General Burdett Coombe, who lived immediately beneath Dick Little. Suddenly the General's eloquence stopped. He had seen Sally. "'Won't you come in?' 
she said, looking at him gravely, with eyes a little larger and a little greyer than usual. "'I... I...' stammered the general, then seeing us all gazing at him, he burst out. "'God bless my soul! What on earth have I done? I had no idea there was a lady here. I... I...' "'Please come in,' said Sally. "'I want you to tell these men how horribly badly behaved they are. You were doing it quite nicely, but I'm afraid they didn't hear it all.' The general looked from Sally to the men, who had now streamed out and were filling Dick Little's small hall. Then, seeing Sally smile, he suddenly burst out laughing, showing a set of dazzlingly white teeth beneath his grizzled grey moustache. Routed by heaven, routed, and by a woman. My dear young lady, he said, turning to Sally, I owe you a thousand apologies. I, I'm afraid I rather let myself go. These young hooligans have knocked down my electrolier. I thought the whole blessed place was coming on my head. And he laughed again, out of sheer boyish enjoyment. From that day Sally and General Burdett Coombe became great friends, and that was how it happened that the general came to join the night club. As he went down to his flat he once more apologized, but Sally said that he was quite justified in what he had said and done. "'Well, well!' he cried after a swift glance to see if she were pulling his leg. "'Boys will be boys, I suppose.' but I wish they would leave my electrolier alone. Good night, all!" And the chorus of good nights was almost as great in volume as the shouts that had greeted Sally's inspiration. "'Now then, you fellows! Taxis!' cried Tom Little. Three men dashed downstairs to commandeer all the taxis in the neighbourhood. Tom Little and Bill Simmons disappeared, but the rest of us managed the crowd into the four taxis that were available. As we sped along to Fenton Street, Fulham, where Bindle lives, each empty taxi that approached was hailed and some of the party got out and entered. Eventually when we arrived at Fenton Street, the procession numbered eight vehicles. The sensation we caused will go down to posterity as the greatest day in the annals of the district. Neighbors flocked to their doors, gramophones, which were tinnily striving to reproduce masterpieces they had misheard, were allowed to run down, and soon what portion of the street that was not occupied by taxis was filled with open-mouthed residents. The general impression was that it was a police raid, although how they reconciled Sally with the police was difficult to understand. Just as we were knocking at Bindle's door, Tom Little and Bill Simmons arrived in a ninth vehicle, out of which they hauled two large suitcases. The door of Bindle's house was opened by Ginger, who looked his astonishment at seeing Sally with some sixteen men behind her. "'Is Mr. Bindle in?' inquired Sally. Without attempting to reply, Ginger called over his shoulder, "'Someone to see yer, Joe!' "'Ask him in!' came the cheery voice of Bindle from within. "'It ain't im, it's a lady. "'Come along in, Martha. I know who it is.' Sally passed by the open-mouthed Ginger, and we trooped in behind her. Bindle was lying on a horsehair couch with one ankle heavily bandaged. His back was towards the door, 
but he called out over his shoulders, "'Come in, Martha, come in. How's your breath, and how's Ertie?' "'It's me,' said Sally, regardless as to grammar. Bindle looked round, as if someone had shot him from behind, saw Sally and the rest of us behind her. "'God Almighty!' he exclaimed in utter astonishment. "'I'm blowed if it ain't the night-club. Cheero, the lot!' And the lot cheeroed Bindle. Tom Little and Bill Simmons then came forward with their suitcases. From these they produced what appeared to be an endless stream of refreshments, bottles of beer, two bottles of whiskey, a dozen siphons of soda, and a miscellaneous assortment of sandwiches, such as are to be found on public-house counters. For once in his life Bindle's speech failed him, as he watched the kitchen-table being turned into a sort of public-house bar. Then, slowly, a happy grin spread over his face, and looking up at Sally, who had come and stood beside him, said, "'This'll do me more good than all the doctor's stuff, miss.' I looked at Bindle closely, the voice was so unlike his. Before leaving Dick Little's flat, Sally had collected all the flowers that she could find, which she carried in a big bouquet. Dick Little is fond of flowers. "'Is them flowers for the coffin, miss?' inquired Bindle, with a strange twist of a smile. "'They're for Mrs. Bindle,' said Sally, with inspiration. "'Well, I'm. Hoy, stop him. Don't let him go.' Bindle's eyes had caught sight of Ginger, who was slipping out of the door. Jack Carruthers made a grab and caught the delinquent by the sleeve. Ginger seemed inclined to show fight but three or four of Tim's men soon persuaded him that God is always on the side of the big battalions, and Ginger was led back into the room. "'Ginger,' said Bindle reprovingly, "'I'm surprised at you. When Miss Sally comes to see us, you go sneakin' off as if you'd picked her pocket, or owed her money. What you mean by it?' "'I don't old with,' began Ginger. "'Never mind what you old with, Ginge. You've got to stand by and see your old pal ain't choked with all these good things." A fugitive shaft of light came into Ginger's eyes as he saw the array of bottles on the kitchen table. Tom Little and Bill Simmons were busy commandeering all the glasses, cups, mugs, etc., they could find on the dresser, and unscrewing the tops of the beer bottles. "'How'd you come?' inquired Bindle, while these preparations were in progress. "'Taxis,' I replied mechanically. "'There are nine of them waiting outside.' Nine? exclaimed Bindle, his eyes open to their full extent. Nine taxis in Fenton Street? Old Beorus!' And he laughed till the tears poured down his cheeks. Bindle was in a mood to laugh at anything. "'And what's all the neighbours doing, sir?' "'Oh, they're busy counting them,' said Carruthers. They think it's a police raid. This was one of the few occasions on which I have seen Bindle laugh. As a rule, he grins. Presently, wiping his eyes with the corner of a newspaper he had been reading, he cried, "'Ere, a glass of milk for the invalid!' Tom Little dashed for the largest jug and filled it up with such haste that the froth foamed down the sides. Bindle clutched the jug with both hands. 
Excuse my getting up, miss, but ears to the night club. We all joined in the toast. I wonder what Mrs. B'll think of all this when she comes back, remarked Bindle. Nine taxis and a police raid. They're sure to tell her. The seating accommodation in Bindle's kitchen was limited. A chair was found for Sally, and several more were brought out of the adjoining parlour, but most of us sat on the floor. Windover occupied one end of the fender, and Angel Herald the other. The comparison between the two was interesting. Windover sat as if all his life had been spent on the end of a fender. Angel Harold, on the other hand, as if he meant everybody to understand that never before had he found himself so situated. Windover was enjoying himself. Angel Harold was acutely uncomfortable. He knew it must be all right by the fact of Windover being there, but his whole appearance seemed to convey the fact that he was unaccustomed to sitting on a fender, with a china mug of whiskey and soda in one hand, and a ham sandwich of public-house proportions in the other. Windover seemed to find a quiet enjoyment in the situation. "'How did you hurt your foot, Mr. Bindle?' inquired Sally. "'Oh, I just kicked up against something what I didn't ought to have kicked, miss,' was Bindle's response. To further questioning he was evasive. It was clear that he did not wish to tell us what had happened. It was equally clear that Sally was determined to know. "'Why don't you tell them, Joe, what you did?' It was Ginger who broke in, a different Ginger from him who had endeavoured to slip out of the room, a Ginger mellowed by three bottles of beer. Finding the whole attention of the room centred upon Bindle, Ginger buried his head in a large milk-jug from which he was drinking. "'Look here, Ginge, you keep that muzzle on. You ain't no talker." Sally turned to Ginger, who had already fallen a victim to her eyes. "'Please, Mr. Mr.' And then it was I remembered that no one had ever heard Ginger's name. "'We call him Ginger, miss, but you mustn't let him talk. He's somehow out of the way of it.' "'Please, Mr. Ginger, tell us what happened.' Bindle made a motion as if to stop Ginger, who replaced the jug on the table and wiped his lips with the back of his disengaged hand. "'It was down at the yard, miss. Ruddy Bill tied a tin on to Polly Kitten's tail.' "'But, but,' said Sally, "'I don't understand.' She looked from Ginger to Bindle. "'You are an old uggins,' said Bindle to Ginger. "'You couldn't keep that face of yours shut, could you?' It's like this, miss. There's a little kid down at the yard what's got a kitten, all fluffy fur, and Ruddy Bill tied a tin onto the poor thing's tail, and it went almost mad with fright. So, so my foot sort of came up against Ruddy Bill. He wouldn't fight, you see. Ruddy Bill's in the firmery, rumbled Ginger. Yes, and I'm on the couch. Never had the Bindle's kitchen witnessed a scene such as that on which the nightclub descended upon it. Even Ginger's gloom was mitigated under the influence of the talk and good fellowship, assisted by unlimited beer. The kitchen floor was covered with men and mugs, glasses and bottles of whiskey and siphons of soda. The atmosphere was grey with tobacco smoke, and the air full of the sound of half a dozen separate conversations. 
Bindle had never looked happier. Every now and then he cast his eyes round in the direction of the door. His dramatic instinct told him that the culmination of the evening's festivities would synchronise with Mrs. Bindle's advent. "'You'll stay and see Mrs. B, miss, won't yer?' said Bindle to Sally. "'She's been a bit poorly of light. I think her soul is artin' her more'n usual.' "'Mr. Bindle,' said Sally severely, "'you must not tease her. You must smooth things, not make them rougher.' "'I don't understand women, miss,' he replied. Then after a pause he continued, "'There's one thing you can always be sure about, and that is no matter what you think a woman's going to do, she's bound to give you a bit of a surprise.' "'As how?' inquired the boy. "'Well, it won't do you no harm to learn, you with that smile of yours.' The boy grew scarlet. "'You're in for trouble, Mr. Indenburg, sure as sure.' "'What is in your mind?' inquired Carruthers. We all like to hear Bindle on women. "'I was thinking of that air-raid last Saturday,' he replied. "'Now, Mrs. Bindle, although she knows that death will be a release from the fetters of the flesh, as she puts it, yet when she heard the guns she bolted into the coal-cellar as if her soul was as shaky as mine.' When I gets home, there she was, a-settin' on a chair in the kitchen, a-holdin' of her art, her face all white, where it wasn't black from the coal. "'And what did you do, Mr. Bindle?' inquired Sally, leaning forward with eager interest. Sally has a theory that in reality Bindle is very considerate and thoughtful in regard to Mrs. Bindle. "'Well, miss,' said Bindle, after a momentary hesitation, I give her three goes of whisky and water. But I thought she was temperance, broke in Dare. She was, sir, was the reply, when she lapped up the last of the third go, which finished up the off-quartern. She turns on me, and she just gives me pickles. But why? inquired Sally. She said I'd done it a purpose, making her break the pledge, and that God didn't ought to blame her, cause she was married to an heathen. Funny er not thinking of it before she had the lot. That's what does me. Talking of air raids, he continued after a pause, it's funny how they seem to affect them as surest of getting an arp and trimmings, while they leaves the heathen merry and bright. Now, me and Ginger was on the tail of the van when the uns little ummin' birds start a-laying eggs. People yelled to him to get under cover but the horses was scared, and he goes to old their eds and talk to him in that miserable way it is. Them horses was never so glad in all their lives to hear old Ginger's voice. "'And what did you do, J.B.?' inquired the boy with interest. Bindle turned and looked him full in the face. "'I ain't in this story, Mr. Clever Indenburg. You can think of me as under the van.' Ginger was just as cool as what you was when you got that bit of ribbon for your tunic. The expression in the boy's face was evidence that Bindle had scored. Now take Ertie, Bindle continued. He's one of them what's got a front-row ticket for Evan, yet when the guns begins to go off and the bombs was droppin', he nips down into the potato cellar to take stock, although he hadn't had a potato there for months. Took him quite a long time it did, too, taking stock on nothing. 
There was poor old Martha, left to look after the shop. Rummy car dirty. He's afraid of too much joy, thinks it might sort of get to his head. He's nuts on heaven and angels, but it's business as usual as long as he can. No, Bindle continued after a pause, in which to take a pull at his tankard and recharge and light his pipe. The longer I lives, the less I seems to know about people. There's Mrs. B, who's always saying that the way of the transgressor is hard. Yet look at me, I'm always cheerio, but she's mostly like a camel what's just found another ump a-growin'. No one don't never seem able to understand another cove's way of looking at things. I had a sister once, pretty gal she was too, got it from me, I expect. I used to get quite a lot of free beer from my mates what wanted me to put in a good word with Annie. Seemed funny like to me that they should want to hang around her when there was other gals about. Yes, continued Bindle after a pause, there's a lot of things I don't understand. Look at them young women a-gaddin' about the West End when it's war and hell for our boys out there. Sometimes I'd like to ask em what they mean. They're cultivating the present so that the future shall not find them without a past, murmured Windover. Nietzsche says that woman is engaged in a never-ending pursuit of the male, said Dare. Perhaps that explains it. Sort of chase me, Charlie, said Bindle. Well, I ain't nothing to say agin it, so long as Mrs. B. don't get to know. This place looks like a pub, Bindle remarked a few minutes later. Wonder what Mrs. B.'ll say. That's what you ought to have, J.B., said Jim Coleman. Have what? inquired Bindle. A pub, was the response. I'd like to have a little pub of me own, Bindle murmured, and I got a name for it, too. In response to loud cries of, Name, name, from the Tim's men, Bindle replied, I didn't ought to tell you. I'm afraid it's as just like salt. It makes your drink like a camel. Come on out with it, we cried. Well, here goes. I'd call it the thirsty soul. After a pause, he added, If I was in the bung line, I'd have the tastiest things in yaller-headed gals behind the bar, as could be found for a hundred miles round. Of course I should have to get rid of Mrs. B. first. She's as jealous as an hen over a china egg what it ain't laid. It's no use being in the public line when you're married. Poor old Ordie Ball found that out, him what used to keep the feathers. One day he took his barmaid out, and next morning his missus took it out of the barmaid, in handfuls she did. The poor gal looked like an aft-plucked goose when Ordie's missus remembered it was nearly dinner-time. Funny thing how women fight over us. This with an air. A hot argument had sprung up between some of the men from Tim's as to the possibility of balancing the human body in the same way that the ancients balanced the figure of Mercury, viz. on one foot, the body thrown forward. This had resulted in a determination of the eyes to prove it by demonstrating the possibility of standing upon a beer-bottle with one foot. 
Soon the infection spread throughout the room, and everybody, with the exception of Sally, Angel Harold, and Bindle, was endeavouring to emulate the classical figure of Eros on the fountain at Piccadilly Circus. Everybody seemed to be calling upon everybody else to look, and just as they looked, down came the demonstrator. It was this moment that an unkind fate chose for the appearance of Mrs. Bindle. To some extent she had been prepared for the unusual by the line of taxicabs in Fenton Street, and also by the tales of the neighbours, who had gathered in ever-increasing force. Two local special constables, who had endeavoured to regulate the traffic and control the crowds, had given up the task in despair, discovering that no special is a prophet in his own district. One was a butcher, who found it utterly impossible to preserve his official dignity in the face of cries of, "'Meat! Meat!' and "'Buy! Buy!' By the time Mrs. Bindle arrived, the police raid theory was in danger of suffering eclipse in favour of a German spy, the nine taxis, it was alleged, having brought soldiers and officials from the war office. Mrs. Bindle entered her own home in a state of bewilderment. For a moment or two she stood at the door unseen, endeavouring to penetrate the grey smoke, which was rapidly choking Sally. Windover was the first to catch sight of her, and he descended hurriedly from his bottle. Then Sally saw her, and next Bindle. Soon the whole room had its eyes fixed upon Mrs. Bindle's attenuated figure, which stood there like an accusing conscience. Bindle grinned, the rest of us looked extremely sheepish, as if caught at something of which we were ashamed. Once more it was Sally who saved the situation. "'Oh, Mrs. Bindle,' she said, going across the room, "'I hope you'll forgive us. We heard that Mr. Bindle was ill, and came over to see him. I wish you would keep these boys in order.' She looked at the Tim's men with a smile. "'They are always playing tricks of some sort or other.' Mrs. Bindle looked round the room as if uncertain what to do or say. Then her gaze returned to Sally. We looked at her anxiously, to see which way the wind was likely to blow. We almost cheered when we saw a frosty smile flit across her features. "'I'm sure it's very kind of you, miss. Won't you come into the parlour?' With Mrs. Bindle, "'Won't you come into the parlour?' was an announcement of friendship, and Bindle heaved a sigh of relief. Sally beckoned to Jack Carruthers. "'Jack,' she said, get those boys to clear up." Without waiting for Jack to deliver her instructions, everyone set to work to clear up the chaos, and in three minutes the place was as orderly as it had been before our arrival, save for a pile of glasses and mugs in the sink. The bottles had been stowed away in the suitcases, and the kitchen looked as it did before the descent upon it of the nightclub. Mrs. Bindle had fixed her eyes on the bunch of roses, looted from Dick Little's flat. "'Oh, I brought those for you, Mrs. Bindle,' said Sally. That broke down Mrs. Bindle's last defences. At Windover's invitation, and in spite of Mrs. Bindle's protests, several of the Tim's men set to work to wash up at the sink. Windover did the washing, whilst the others wiped, amidst a perfect babble. Mrs. Bindle looked from one to the other. Presently turning to Sally, she asked in a whisper, "'Is the Lord here, miss?' 
"'The Lord?' questioned Sally in surprise. "'Bindle says a Lord belongs to your club. Is he heir, miss?' "'Oh, Lord Windover!' cried Sally, laughing. "'Yes, he's here.' "'Is that him, miss?' inquired Mrs. Bindle, gazing at Angel Harold, who stood apart from the others with an awkward air of detachment. Sally shuddered as she followed Mrs. Bindle's gaze and saw the white satin tie threaded through a diamond ring. "'No, that's Mr. Harold. Lord Windover's washing up.' "'Winnie!' she called out. I want to introduce you to Mrs. Bindle." Windover approached, eyeglass in eye, with a jug in one hand, a towel he had snatched up in the other, and a red-bordered cloth round his waist. Sally introduced him and he bowed with his usual exquisite grace, chatted for a few moments, and then returned to his duties at the sink. In Mrs. Bindle's eyes there was a great wonder, and as they returned to Angel Herald, a little disappointment and regret. Finally we all trooped off the best of friends. Bindle declared that he was cured, and Mrs. Bindle said she was very pleased that she had come in before we had taken our departure. We stowed ourselves away in the taxis, and, as the procession started, Fenton Street raised its voice in a valedictory cheer. "'Winnie,' said Sally to Windover, as we bowled eastward at a penny a furlong, Tonight you have wrecked Mrs. Bindle's cherished ideal of the aristocracy. I shall never forget her face when I told her that the man who was washing up was the Lord. She had fixed upon Mr. Harold. Windover screwed his glass into his eye and gazed at Sally in silence. Thus ended one of the most notable nights in the history of the night club. End of chapter 10